Well, good morning again. We've been in this series, like I said, called I Want to Believe But. And the first week we talked about faith and doubt, how doubt can be a doorway to your faith if you know what to do with it, that we can bring it to Jesus, and he's big enough to handle our doubt. The second week we looked at faith and truth and how believing in Jesus can actually also translate into confidently sharing that belief with others. Next week, we'll look at faith and things and how hard it is to believe in a world where we can have anything we want. And then we will have that bonus week that I mentioned, and faith and time is the topic where I want to follow Jesus, but I don't know how to fit him into my already busy life. And today, we're looking at this idea of faith and hypocrisy and how we believe in God or we want to believe in God, except our sin and everybody else's seems to get in the way. Uh, So can we put that last slide up, um, Logan, from the song that we sang, the second to last one, that said, I'm a sinner. If it's not one thing, it's another. caught up in words, entangled in lies. A couple weeks ago, when we were talking about faith and doubt, I asked you to write on a card doubts that you had, and we had dozens and dozens of cards on this board, and it was beautiful, and there was more than one that essentially said, can God really love me after all the bad I've done? Because I'm a sinner, and if it's not one thing, it's another. And I'm tangled up in lies. How could a God who is holy and perfect and good actually love me, who's not holy and perfect and good? This is the biggest question of our lives, I think, for so many of us. The shame that comes from the things that we know we've done And this God who says he loves everyone, but does he really love me? So in order to answer that question in a way that we can experience, we're going to look at a very familiar story from the scriptures. Some might say it's famous. It's one of the stories of scripture that there has been more art on this story than any other story. So if you have a Bible or an app that's a Bible, uh, go to Luke 15. In Luke 15, uh, we'll need to start in verse 1 to get the context of what's going on here. Luke 15 verse 1 says, Now, The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So then Jesus told them this parable. So this is not a rhetorical question. You can answer. Uh, Who were the people that were gathered around with Jesus? Sinners? Who else? Pharisees, who else? Lawyers, who else? Tax collectors. Fair enough. 
maybe the disciples. So, somewhat rhetorical, but I do want you to reflect on it. Who are the tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and teachers of the law in your everyday life? You know, those Pharisees, those people that compare themselves with others to feel better about themselves, these people who usually do it by talking about themselves or how great they are and or by criticizing how bad someone else is. These are the Pharisees in our lives. Or there's people who I would say are tax collectors, people who are scorned for their profession, their behaviors, or their political views, people who profit off broken and unfair systems. These are the tax collectors of our day. But they're also people who punish themselves for their actions and behaviors. They're people who might put on a perfect smile, but inside they feel so ashamed of what they've done or what they're thinking or what they're doing that they can't even approach God. These were the people that were gathered around Jesus. Also not rhetorical, why were they gathered around Jesus? What was that? To listen. They were gathered around Jesus to hear him. To hear him. Not because they wanted to be seen with him, to hear him. I don't think there's a story from the scriptures that a tax collector or a sinner actually wanted to be with Jesus just to be seen with him. Maybe Zacchaeus, but really he wanted to see Jesus, not be seen with Jesus. And there's a difference. These are the people that are gathered around Jesus. They're not just hanging out. They want to hear him. And it's to those people that he tells three stories that are one parable. Because he says, and then he told them this parable. Parable is a story or an illustration, usually vivid, might be true, probably isn't true, but it conveys one major theme or a thread of themes that would be consistent through the story. So if he told three stories, then each of these stories must have some threads of consistency if it's one parable. So he tells this story about a lost sheep and a person who goes and leaves 99 others to find that sheep and the joy when he finds it. Then he tells a story about a coin and a woman who searches diligently for a coin and then rejoices over that coin. And then he tells the story that we're going to hear today. And I pray that, like was said, that we would hear it, that we would listen. Because this is what our sin and our shame and a God who loves us is all about. So would you pray with me? God, as we look in your word and we read it, I pray that it would read us. That your spirit, God, would not only illuminate it, but it would aliven us to actually hear and recognize and respond to you in a way that would bring life into us, and through us. 
Help us to get out of our own way. Help us to hear it if we've heard it before. Help us to hear it if we're stuck, focused on ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Luke 15, verse 11, Jesus continues the parable. He's talked about searching, the joy in finding, and actually how that relates to this joy in heaven. And he says there was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between his sons. And not long after that, the younger son got up all he had and he set off for a distant country and then he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, read foreigner, who sent him to his field to feed pigs, an animal that a Jewish person shouldn't touch. And there he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So how many of you have ever thought in a time in your life, and if you're younger, it's probably been sooner, man, I can't wait until I get out of my parents' house, I can't wait until I can make my own rules, I can have my own fun, I can decide what to do with my own money. A few of you. A few of you want to be honest. A few of you are like, it's Father's Day, I'm not sure I should answer that. <laughs> you know, in our culture, I don't know if there's a lot of people that continue to do that. Because if you are middle class or upper class, the trend has been that your, your, your teenager doesn't have to think that because we often send them out to a distant country called college, and there they might squander our wealth. <laughs> or certainly if they're not prepared, whether they're Christian or not Christian, they can squander their purity and their faith. It's not an indictment on college. It's just the reality of our changing times. In his book, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, there's this sociologist named Christian Smith who surveyed uh, high school and college teenagers and found that their overriding belief in God was that he's a God who blesses and takes to heaven those who try and live good and decent lives that this God wants them to feel happy and good about themselves, and that even though God exists and created the world, he does not need to be involved in our daily lives unless there's a problem. Now, as I reflect on my life, this is the theme, the belief that I had when I left for college. This view of God makes him completely unnecessary for our lives. He puts us, he puts you in the director of your soul. You get to decide. In Jesus' culture, to ask for your inheritance was nearly saying, Dad, I want you dead. It was at least saying, 
Dad, I want your money, but I don't want you. I want to be in charge. I don't need you. Today, one might say that person is entitled. And we're not told why the son left. We're not sure if he didn't like the responsibility of the family work. At the end of the story, the older brother comes in from working in the field, so it's probably farm work, it's hard work. Maybe he didn't want to do that. But now he's saying he longs to see his father as master and be one of his servants. Did you catch that? So if that's his view of God or his father now, I wonder what his view of his father was when he left. Did he think of his dad as buddy or dude or bud or pop? So there's this little tiny, I don't want to go on a little rant here, but there's this little slice of our society that has this Jesus is my buddy mentality, that God can be your best friend, and while I think that God does long to be our friend, that that does not make us equals. We do not just hang out with Jesus and, you know, he gives us advice and then we can decide if we want it or not. But that's what some of us think when we take this Jesus is our buddy mentality out further. It's like this. Like, I would say that I'm a friend to my children, but I would not say that I'm one of their friends. If they ever introduced me as this is my buddy Rob, I would quickly and probably privately tell them, I am your father I will always be your father. Yes, I'm a friend in that I care for them. I want what's best for them. In that way, I might be a better friend to them than their own friends right now, but I will always be their father, and our friendship will always be in the context of me being father. And I think with this Jesus is my buddy mentality, we miss that. We lose the awe and the reverence, the submission, and the authority that God has for our lives. And we think we can just go, give me my share of the estate. I will go do with it what I want. When he returns, or he hasn't returned yet, let's, let's not go there yet, so the younger son goes, and he says he spends everything. It, it, it uses this word reckless or prodigal. It actually means reckless. And, and it, usually people who are spending recklessly are desperately trying to fill something else. If you've ever had a friend experience a midlife crisis, then you know this. It can either be humorous or it can be just downright ugly. But that's where this guy is at. Because just like the younger son in the story, nothing will fill that spot no matter how much we spend to try and fill it. But on the other side, if you're a parent who has experienced or is experiencing this story of having a child leave your family or leave the faith, then you know this story. And you know the attitude of the father. The father is waiting, he's looking, he's pacing, he's praying, he is desperate. 
He's checking his mailbox. He's probably checking his inbox. He's, he's, he's checking his voicemail. He's, he's answering the phone, even though the telemarketers are there, and he's being nice to them just in case it's his son that left. And if you have a kid who's left, you know the attitude of this father that you long to just see them again. Many of us know this story well, though, because we're like the younger son. We've taken up our, our, our wealth, we've taken up our intelligence, and we have gone our own way. Whether it's not honoring our parents or whether it's having a past that if ever got out at church, we would certainly run for the hills. And we think feeding pigs is just fine. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his Weight of Glory book. We're like ignorant children. We're content to keep making mud pies in the slums because we have no idea what a holiday at the beach would look like. This son is imagining the bargain. Could I just go back, apologize to my dad, and be a servant? Because being a servant in my dad's house would be better than the way I'm living now. The view he has of his dad is twisted. So verse 17 says, When he came to his senses, it's this Hebrew phrase that's repeated in other parts of the Bible that says, When he thought about what he was experiencing, when he thought about what he was experiencing, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And yet I am here starving to death. I know what I'll do. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. Picture this agricultural community, rolling hills, in a son who's coming back from a lot of years of wild living. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and put the sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Son has this idea of what this bargain, what this forgiveness is going to go like. And he can't even get it all out. He actually can't even get any of the words out before his father runs to him. And, and Jewish men at the time don't run, but runs to him and then throws his arms around him. How many, how many men do you know that run and throw their arms around another man and then just tuck, yeah, you're laughing because you're right. It, they tuck in so hard and then they kiss him. Like, we don't think that way because if we do, it starts to get awkward, right? It's excessive. That's what we would say, like, uh, excessive. 
But that's exactly what it is. It's reckless. It's excessive. It's undeserved. It's true love. It's like having something, losing it, realizing how valuable it is, and then getting it back. That's what Jesus wants us to hear in this story. That there is a son who is so lost, he doesn't know how to find his way back. But when he thinks about what he's experiencing, he goes, wait a second. Just being somewhat close to my father, even seeing him as master would be better than where I'm living, so I will go back. And he can't even get it all out. And he just, just embraces for far too long. The dad, the son might even be doing that double tap, like, I want out of this hug. <laughs> you know, or like, let's get the handshake in first so that we don't have to do two arm holds. And it's this giant embrace. In, in the Old Testament, this same language is used with Joseph and his brothers, and it said that they almost broke each other's necks. They were great they were grasping. So they threw themselves on their neck. That's the phrase it's used. It's to get in so close and to just collapse onto the person. There's no space between them. The other reason, though, that he ran is because in that culture, if you had a son do what this son did, when you came back into town, the elders of the town would greet you at the main street of the city the city gates, the, the city hall, if you will. And there they would take a piece of pottery and they would break it before the elders and before the son and say, you have dishonored your family, you have brought shame on them, and you are no longer worthy to be in this town. Leave. So the other reason he was running was to get there before the elders of the city. He does not want his son to experience the shame that will come from coming home. Some of you worry desperately about, if I come to God, my sin, my shame will be brought into the light. This story tells us that there is a God who wants to have none of your shame come into the light wants you to be in the light, but not your shame. Doesn't want to keep anything from keeping, doesn't want anything to keep you from coming to him. And he says, let the party begin. Have you ever let a human being, let alone let God embrace you like that? I was at a wedding yesterday and, um, I happened to get to sit next to the father of the groom and the photographer and her assistant intern. And uh, as I was asking, you know, how she came to have an intern, she started complimenting this other photographer in a way that was vivid, specific, um, uh, uplifting in a way that I've never heard someone talk before. And this other person sat almost unmoved, and she like cracked a, a smile. And I said, did, did you just hear what she said? And she, yeah. No, really, did you hear what she said? Did you embrace the words like one would embrace a hug? 
if you embrace that acceptance from God. That's what this story is asking. But there's another brother in the story. It's the older brother that's continued to live with his father. It's the one who's been obedient. The one who returns home exhausted after a long day's work. The one who's kept the rules. The one who's done everything right. And he hears the music and he, he hears the laughter and he sees the crowds and he wonders, what is going on? Verse 25, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing And he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out. So his father went out. His father didn't go in. His father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son. That's how I imagine it. My son. His father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad, because this son of yours, this brother of yours, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the God of the story. The father of the story is God. He is the one that reaches out to ones that are so caught in their sin and shame that they can barely come home and the one that is so prideful and arrogant that they refuse to see the other. They're both lost sons and the father loves them both. I think this story has captured artists over hundreds and hundreds of years because this story is our story. It's the story of humanity. We get distant from God. This older brother reveals how distant he is in his whining. I never have a goat. You never give me a goat to party with my friends. Read, not with you, dad. So even though he's physically close, he's relationally just as far away as his younger brother. And the sin of the younger brother is no better or no worse than the sin of the older brother. They're both distant. And what picture does the older brother have of his father? All these years I've been slaving for you. Does he just see his dad as a harsh taskmaster? You know, when we put a wrong picture of God up in our minds or on the wall, it's idolatry. We've just created an idol, an image that is not true of God. That's a sin. Anytime you or I create an inaccurate picture of God 
and say that's God. It's, it's sin. As we, as we close, almost close, why is it so hard to come to this party? I mean, we're in the Midwest, so I was talking to someone who was from California, and I'm like, yes, it's nice to meet you. I'm a little extroverted, too. And she's like, oh my gosh, you're from the Midwest. Meaning, I can't be as extroverted as she is from California, because in the Midwest, we just start to feel guilty if we smile or laugh or, heaven forbid, are giddy. <laughs> I know not all of you have Scandinavian backgrounds, but we, we, it might be that. It might be that we know that we have sin or shame in our lives. We know that we're not perfect, and we don't know if we can come to the party. Maybe they're going to check our backgrounds, do a little background check on us. Maybe it's hard to come to the party because we actually want to control the guest list. We get uncomfortable when, when someone is let in to the party who we didn't think should be there, and we get uncomfortable when someone is not there that we think should be there. We have words for God about that. They're not unlike the older brother's words. But I think finally, it's so hard to join this party because deep down, deep down, if we're totally honest, we're afraid our name isn't going to be on the guest list. I'm doing a wedding yesterday. I go to the, re so I was at the wedding. <laughs> Just want to make that clear. I was at the wedding. I RSVP'd. I go to the reception, and there's all those name cards, and they're in alphabetical order. Green means chicken, blue means fish, or something like that. And uh, J-A-C-O-B. I mean, I was like, all of my library skill systems, Dewey Decimal, like J-A-H-I-J-O, Jones, Iverson, I'm like, where's my name? And then someone walked up to me that recognized me, and they're like, hey, I looked for you, and I couldn't find you either. And I'm like, okay, this is confirming something that's not good. I'm like, I, I'm pretty sure they want me to do the dinner prayer, but they didn't invite me to the party. I think some of us think this, and that's why we don't want to go to the party, that God wants to have not just in heaven with the angels, but on earth too. If you want to understand the heart of the Father, you have to go to this party. So what do we do with this? Well, before we can join the party, we have to recognize where we are and where God is. We have to recognize that we're in a distant land or we have to recognize that we act very distant from God. Or that we're afraid that our name isn't on the guest list. But we have to recognize where we're at and where God is. That's what we got to do first. Again, the younger brother's sin is no better or no worse than the older brother's sin. One has to reject their rebellion and their shame and go to God. The other has to reject their pride and their self-righteousness and go to God. That's the second thing we've got to do. This, these, each of these stories are return, return, search, and return. We've got to return to God. I want to believe 
But what about all the bad I've done? Hear the reckless grace in this. Hear the compassion of the father who runs to his son and runs to the other son and invites them in. See that the reason that my name card wasn't on the list in this big table outside is because it was actually inside at a reserved table next to the father of the bride because I had a seat of honor at this wedding. There was this little part of me that was like, oh my gosh, I'm not invited. I have a seat of honor at this wedding. I have to believe in this story. If it were a real story, I still think it speaks real truth, but I have to believe that if it were a real story, that father who is throwing that party would have two seats of honor for both of his sons. There is a God who loves you so unconditionally that he has a seat of honor for you at the party. Please hear that, friends. We've got to recognize where we're at and where God is. We've got to return to God, and we've got to receive who God says we are. This is my son who's returned. This is my other son who had a moment of not wanting to have the son, but he has returned. These are my sons. We want to be content with just being a servant of God where God has sonship or daughtership for us. We are his beloved children. God is desperate for us to know that. And the biggest way we can know that is to come to the party where people who are far from God turn and say, I want to be in. On, on Father's Day, it seems especially, if, if you don't know that, I pray that you'd know that. If you do know that, then especially on a day like Father's Day, it seems appropriate to close with this book that uh, this guy named Dr. Bingston wrote. Huge sociological study out of UC, USC uh, called Families and Faith, How Religion is Passed Down Across Generations. And while this person would say there's not a single factor that was determined success in passing on one's faith, two important themes were revealed. One is that parents passed on their faith much more effectively when their children could see it. My wife and I were talking, we read our devotions often on our smartphones. Our kids have no idea if we're texting, if we're playing words with friends or whatever is more popular than that now, or if we're doing our Bible study and our devotions. Maybe we need to go back to paper. If parents, if kids are seeing a sincere faith that is central to their family, it's more likely that they'll pass on. But it must be paired with something in order for that to work. That is family warmth. A little emotional, because that wasn't always the case for me. But my parents do love me. They just were like, I told you that when you were born and when you were 10, so I'll tell you before you graduate. That's just kind of how it was in our house. And though mom's affection was more was important, it was actually repeatedly over and over in the study, dad's affection that was most important. When you combine a 
a real faith with family warmth, fatherly affection. Faith gets transferred. And you don't have to have kids to do this. This is why we have the church. If you're like, I know this story, I got this story, then hear that. Show people your faith. Share in the affections, because we could all use another hug. Would you pray with me? God, whether we are like the older son or the younger son, I pray that we would come to our senses, as verse 17 says, as your word says, that we would think about what we are experiencing and choose to respond to that, God, that we would recognize where we are and where you are, and we would return to you. God, some of us are so concerned about our shame that we can't run to you. God, would you run to them? After they just take one step, would you run to them? Would they feel your embrace and your love and your celebration? God, and if we are the older son, if our story is the older son, if we get actually really upset when we see that much grace, I pray that you would speak to us about what your party is like about what it means to recklessly love before it's returned. That while we were still sinners, God, you died for us. God, make us more aware of your presence in a way that keeps you as God, as master, as savior, as Lord. Yes, you want us to call you daddy. You want us to be close enough to call you friend, but you our Lord, and we let you have control of our lives. I pray that that would be true for each and every one of us today, no matter where we're at, no matter where we came from, no matter what baggage we have. May we hear your, your call and may we respond.